Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jay Kettle. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you all again. With me, of course, is co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing well this evening, Jay. It's good to uh, be here again with you on this uh, beautiful Saturday here in New Jersey. Um, so, Should be an interesting discussion. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, uh, We're going to be talking about uh, music, and not just music, but music theory, which involves um, mathematics, uh, harmonics, and a lot variety, of stuff that people don't really um, Concepts that may be new and unusual, but I want our listeners to hang in there because they'll get it. Yes, you will get it, you will understand it, and uh, you will be interested. So let's, let's, in, let's introduce tonight's guest right off the bat. Alexandre Tanus is a composer, he's a musician, and an ethnomusicologist specializing, uh, specializing in the way in which sound and music are used for spiritual and healing purposes. He has conducted field work over many years with musicians in the United States and abroad. Alexandre is a frequent lecturer at Georgetown University, Princeton University, and Columbia University, and in museums such as the American Museum of Natural History, the Museum of the City of New York, and the Metropolitan Museum of New York. As a film composer, Alexandre has composed two film scores, The Seventh Dog, uh, which came out in 2005, and Jim, which is a 2010 film. His lectures can be found on YouTube by simply Googling Alexandre Tanos. Alexandre, welcome to uh, Dose Nation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Jake. Hello, James. So, let's. Um, the, the first question I want to ask you is: How did you how did you get interested in the in in sacred music? How did you get interested in, you know, where did your interest spark from that got you into analyzing, you know, the mathematics and the harmonics and so on? What what drove you to do that, um, mm-hmm. and to choose that as your field of study? Yeah, um, various things actually. Um, uh, when I uh, was an undergrad. I um, played double bass, um, classical and jazz, but I was also involved in what's called the Collegium Musicum, which is an ensemble dedicated to the performance of um, late medieval, renaissance and early Baroque music, uh, singing and playing sometimes. And I was also involved in choirs. And um, we sang a lot of a cappella chants. Um, and after that, um, I started getting interested in different forms of chants and non-Western traditions, or at least non-classical. And um, that led me to more explorations of uh, non-Western chants. And um, later on, I started my studies in ethnomusicology, and there I started looking into the different forms of chants um, everywhere in Europe and in Asia and uh started getting into really how chance can be different and which also led me to theories about music that are not just related to chance but related to the various temperaments which is the visions of sound in the octave okay and so you were in your you were in your graduate studies when you decided to go into ethnomusicology specifically correct. studying chance uh, religious chants that people used for for sacred Sacred ritual. Actually, it didn't start with specifically studying that. I, uh, when I was studying ethnomusicology, I uh, studied the music of West Asia, uh, Turkish, Arabic, and Persian musics, um, which are microtonal cultures. That means um, in their scales or modes, makamat, they're also called makamat, um, they use smaller divisions of sound. <laughs> Um, smaller than the half step, which is the smallest division in Western 
uh, music theory. Basically, and the half step, a half step would be like between a G and a G sharp. Up, exactly. Or the distance between a black and a white key on a piano. Mm hmm. So, uh, what are these smaller divisions? You'll have half flats and half sharps, where basically the note would be somewhere in between, not exactly in the middle. In Turkish music, you can have far more divisions of sound, smaller divisions. So these are called microtones or microtonal musical cultures. And, uh, and, and they, these are produced usually on fretless instruments. Exactly. Uh, that you can, um, use, use slight finger bends or slides to get very small fluctuations in tone. Exactly. Between them. One right. can produce them on the violin, cello, string bass, viola, but also on certain wind instruments. Um, and, um, yeah, of course the voice and, Variety of different instruments, but all of the instruments because, because fretted strings instruments, the movement from one fret <laughs> to the next is a half step. Exactly, and that's that's the standard tuning that we think of in Western musical and, and Western scoring. Yeah, and so for these microtonal <laughs> instruments, you're really looking at a fretless stringed instrument mm -hmm. with with no uh, de demarcation between half steps. Yeah, it's um, it's open. Uh, it's an open continuum between notes. Precisely. Unless you choose to bend the string on a guitar to reach the microtone and you can do that, oh, which is sure. mm -hmm. something that's done in blues. Right. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. temper the, in, they temper the notes in blues, in blues with the bending. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, remind me to talk later on about uh, the, the origin of the blue note in blues, which made it to rock and jazz as well. Mm, okay. And sure. we can move, move around the discussion a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's, that... a, there's a lot of <clears throat> questions I have related to uh, the origins of different musical styles, but this, that sounds like as good a place as any to start with that blue note. So the best way to understand it, um, think of an octave. For those of you who don't know uh, music theory, the octave is the distance between one note and its repetition. So C and another C. Um, so, right. So if you go from do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. you start again at do, which is the next octave. Exactly. Right. So you can go either higher octave or lower octave. Basically, then the next note where that same note repeats. And that would be an octave, which is eight notes apart, generally in, in the scales that we use. In the Western word, we divide the octave into 12 half steps. And half step again is the distance between black and white key on the piano. So something happened in the 1600 in Europe, uh, became known as the equal temperament, where they took the octave and they divided it into 12 equidistant half steps. So all half steps are equal, when in fact they shouldn't be equal. Now, and why why did they do that? Just because <clears throat> it was pleasing for measurement purposes? The, the main reason as it's transmitted to us is to facilitate transposition, which is changing the key of a particular mm. piece of music from the key of C major to another distant one. If you have a key, mm -hmm. uh, a right. piece in the key of C major, and you're playing an unequal temperament, you cannot transpose this piece of music from C to another distant key. For those of you who know a little bit about music theory, what I mean here by a distant key, another key that has more than four flats or four sharps in the key signature, mm -hmm. without the piece, actual piece of music starting to sound out of tune. 
this is what will happen if you're playing in unequal temperament and to decide to transpose a piece of music from one key to another distant key. So what they did, sometimes to facilitate playing the piece uh, on the string instruments or for the voice especially, if mm -hmm. let's say we have a singer who cannot sing in this key, the piece of music is too low or too high, then they'll pick a different key convenient to his or her vocal range. It's kind of like a quantizing all half mm -hmm. steps to be all equal. Now, the octave is equal to 1,200 cents. A cent is the smallest division of sound. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm talking about, um, these harmonic overtones, basically, uh, this is stuff that's not just uh, the domain of musicians, but also mathematicians and physicists. Um, they can be called either harmonics, harmonic overtones, overtones, partials as well. Um, mm -hmm. And basically the octave is 1,200 cents, which would make every half step 100 cents. Now, in a non-equal tempered scale, these half steps may be equal to little more than 100 cents or little less. Any one note you play on any instrument, man-made instrument or voice or any sound in nature, actually, uh, there's an infinite number of possibilities within that note. Let's say that note, take for example, flute, you're playing a note on it and that note is C. The C that you're hearing is called the fundamental, the most mm -hmm. pronounced note. But within that C, there is a whole series that goes to infinity. But most importantly, that series always has the same ratio and the series would go as following. C is the fundamental. The first overtone is an octave higher C, eight note apart. And the second overtone will be a G. And the third one will be C, and then E, G, B flat. And the intervals starting with an octave to a fifth, a fourth, third, they start to shrink and go smaller and smaller and smaller to infinity. And yes, Western harmony and most harmonies came out of the harmonic overtone series because the first three individual notes that you'll find in a series would be C, E, and G, which would make a C major chord. The C major chord, right. So the first three harmonic overtones would yes. be, would be the, what we would consider the chords that you would play on a, on a guitar or a piano. Yes, exactly. In a Western scale. In a Western scale. Now, mm -hmm. um, adding to this, basically, uh, these notes will go to infinity. And whether you're starting on C or D sharp or B flat, whether you're playing them on a flute, oboe, string bass, or human voice, anything. Now, these notes, very importantly, one would wonder why are they there? By the way, this is one of the manifestation of intelligence in nature, uh, similar to Fibonacci series, similar to, um, uh, gosh, um, cymatics and so on. Um, if you try to measure the tuning of these notes, you'll find that these harmonic overtones are a few cents higher or lower than a perfectly tuned keyboard. For example, I said that first note would be a C as fundamental. Mm -hmm. The second overtone will be a G. That G is plus two cents. Let's say you have a perfectly tuned piano and you try to match that overtone uh, in a bit, we're going to play these overtones for the listeners so that they'll they'll hear what kind of tuning they'll have. <clears throat> and even if the, you're not a musician, you'll still be able to notice 
slight out of tuneness, but that's nature's tuning. It's out of tune for us right now because we made everything snap into grid. We quantize everything and mm-hmm. we perceive this as being perfection, but the ancients actually use this as the pure uh, harmonic system of nature that's also encoded in, in, in us. So that G is plus two cents, which means it's slightly sharper than that G on the keyboard. But when mm-hmm. you get to the uh, <clears throat> the E, the fifth uh, note in this series, that E is minus 14 cents. The fascinating thing is when you get to the seventh one, which is the B flat, the B flat is minus 31 cents, so it's very flat. I see. So the farther out you go in the harmonic overtones, the farther the variation off what should be the mathematically precise overtone. Um, most of the time, but sometimes you get smaller, actually, variation. I can tell you the deviation. Uh, for example, in the third overtone, you have plus 2 cents. The fifth mm-hmm. one, you have minus 14 cents. Mm. The sixth, plus 2, and then minus 31 on the seventh. On the ninth is plus 4. On the 10th is minus 14. On the 11th is minus 49. That's the greatest one. And and then plus 2, plus 41, minus 31. So it's quite erratic. There's no system. But basically, all of this is based on um, um, Fibonacci. Uh, numbers. Oh, I see. Yeah. So the, so all of the, so the, the, the natural overtones <coughs> are more precisely match a, a Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, yes, exactly. And which ah, is, something that occurs which is, which is based on the, the phi ratio, the exactly. golden ratio, which occurs. So that all comes, it all comes back to the golden ratio in, in really music. Size, what you're saying. That's why the ancients revered it in architecture, in painting and sculpture, but also in music and, and that, uh, to talk a little specifically about the B flat. Now, can we, B flat, can we talk a little, can we, before we just get right into that, can, does this play into why there's, there's, um, a little bit of difference in the, in the way pe- people tune their standard A? In, there's the Austrian 435 hertz, there's the classical 430 hertz. Uh-huh. In Baroque music, it's 415 hertz. I think in some music, it's like up to 466 yeah. hertz. <laughs> what, what, can you explain to me how the how where you tune A changes the quality of the music that you're playing? Sure. Yeah. Just 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 is that a good place to jump from where we were just talking about? Yeah, sure, we can talk okay. about this. So um, basically, that's not related to the harmonic overtones. It's more. What is your standard pitch? Where are you starting on? Right now, the standard pitch in the world is 440 hertz, 440 mm-hmm. cycles per second. Um, if you have an orchestra or an ensemble that specializes in performance practice, which is uh, performance authenticity, uh, let's say if you're performing Baroque music, it's going to be around 410, 415. And then the more you move for, to later music, the higher that tuning of the A will go to 420, 425. Around, Mozart's time, it was around 430, 435. Right now, we're at 440. But the most natural one is 432. The most natural one, given that we are living on Earth. And we are living on Earth, and, and, and there's something that's called... Uh, <coughs> Schumann resonance? Schumann's resonance, which is 7.8. Mm-hmm. And you get Schumann's resonance basically by calculating. Again, I'm avoiding going into jargon and mathematics, but I'm explaining, I'm going to explain it in a way that would be clear for everyone. If you take the globe 
just Earth, basically, without the atmosphere, and calculate the ratio, and then go to the far end or the highest layer in the atmosphere, which is the ionosphere, and calculate that as well. And the distance between the two, you get Schumann's resonance, which is 7.8. And that frequency, 7.8 hertz, affects a lot brainwave cycles uh, in, in our brain. So to be in the natural world, 432 is the optimum one. That means all musicians everywhere in the world should use 432. Now, but, but most people thing. use most people use 440 because that's that's the standard. 440 age. and and can, uh, now can uh, you can you answer me this very quickly? Now in the grunge movement of the 90s, it was very popular for musicians to down tune their guitars a half step to mm-hmm. D sharp mm-hmm. uh, as this the first chord, first note instead of instead of the E. Yeah, is that is that moving it more towards the natural resonance uh, that you're talking about or? They, they well, what, what is the purpose of that? I, I never understood why they did that. Actually, but. no one, no one knows. Maybe, maybe they, they sensed, uh, the gravity of the, the correct tuning of the A, which is flatter than 430. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. uh, that would set you well beyond 432 if you tune it down by half step. So, but just to mention who, implemented the 440 it's very interesting it was joseph goebel the nazi mm. joseph goebel okay wait a minute now i have to i have to ask <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. i just got to back up real really really far here because uh, you know world war <coughs> world war 2 is i think one of the most interesting periods of history why 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 was goebel's involved in that because his scientists uh, and you know the, the top scientists were affiliated with nazi <laughs> Uh, they realized that um, music has a lot of power in affecting consciousness. And if you control the tuning of A, the frequency, the starting point, mm-hmm. and keep in mind that the mathematics have already been um, adjusted uh, a few centuries ago with the equal temperament, you can control people's mind. And that also was instilled by the Rockefellers. Uh, there's plenty of information about this online for those of you who would like to research it. I've, I've seen some of this, and that's why I brought it up. This, yeah, this, this is um, this, this is this tuning of A being some kind of a a mood or behavioral control mechanism. Exactly. Now, I mean, as far um, as is 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 what Joseph Goebbels did with it, what was the consequence of of that change? Um, basically, people would still enjoy the music that they're listening to. But uh, the music would not be tuned according to uh, natural laws where human beings would resonate with music and nature um, in the same ambient frequency. So they wouldn't they would be able to have an aesthetic appreciation of the music, but it wouldn't have that same kind of emotional uh, resonance. And. But- that, that live performance music has. And unlocking or, consciousness and furthering consciousness. Yeah, basically, it, that's it. Now, another another fascinating thing while we're talking about this topic is that all string players, when they're playing just strings among themselves, we naturally play, um, I'm, saying we, I'm a string bass player, and I've noticed this many, many times, that we automatically play in unequal temperament. When we're playing with another um, fretless instrument. When I played the string bass, I used to practice an hour or two a day. 
And then after that, I used to go to the piano and practice and, and the piano, which was perfectly in tune. I had at that time, I had a digital keyboard, which does not go out of tune. Right. I would notice that the fifth was flat. Right. Plus I do this all the time with my digital keyboard and my guitar. Yeah. <laughs> So basically, why? Because I was naturally playing in non-equal temperament. And then when I would go to fixed pitch instrument where things are tempered, I would notice that it's out of tune. And mm. players now, everywhere in the world, when they play with a fixed pitch instrument, let's say marimba, xylophone, or pianos and, and keyboard instruments, or guitar players, they have to adjust their intonation to match the other instrument because they cannot do anything about it if you're playing keyboard. That's what you're given and it's tuned to equal temperament. But as a string player, you're playing fretless string instrument, you actually automatically, whether you want it or not, whether you're aware of temperament or not, we play in non-equal temperament. Right, because you can let the you can let the string slide a little in and out of tune. Plus you can yeah. also adjust the tune with your finger as you're playing by sliding it up or down just slightly. Exactly. I also play double bass for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we've got some stringed yeah. instruments players here. Yeah. So um, while we're talking with Alexandra, if anybody out there has questions, you can send questions to questions at dosenation.com and we can try to get to them before the end of the show because I actually there's a, a lot of there's a lot of different stuff that we're covering here. And I mean, we'll we'll get it back to the harmonic overtones and we'll play some samples of the of um, some of these things that we're talking about. But you go ahead and ask what you wanted to, Jake. Uh, there was a question that, that that came in to me, believe it or not, uh, through my cell phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they wanted to know if the, if there was any connection between music, um, the connection that you're talking about between music and mind control, if it's similar to binaural beats. Binaural, binaural beats. beats. Yeah, yeah, binaural beats. Sure. If that's well, a different topic, but okay. go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, no, but we'll talk about binaural beats, uh, a little later. Because okay, that's great. been a la mode, uh, lately quite a lot. Now, I just want to talk about the B-flat, the blue note. Yeah, go ahead. It's very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, The B-flat in the harmonic series, which is the seventh overtone, is minus 31 cents, which means that B-flat and the flat lowers the B by half step Mm -hmm. uh, is a very flat one. Now, the blue... Right, it's way out of tune. It's one of the harmonic overtones that's that's way out of equal temperament exactly by at least a half step and a blue note in blues and jazz is a note that that's played out of tune on purpose and usually singers would do this all the time and guitar players would bend the string or you know do various things to get the blue note and this is the definition of a blue note that that is basically a note that's out of tune on purpose but it strikes, it hits the right feeling and everybody responds to the blue note in the same way. Now, we know what kind of revolution blues caused in music. Well, first of all, um, it came out of strong need to express agony and misery um, with African-Americans during slavery time. And... Um, because of blues, we have rock and roll. If you don't have rock and roll, if you don't have blues, we wouldn't have rock in most styles right now. We wouldn't have jazz. Jazz is basically a result of an amalgamation exploration of um, American marching band music, ragtime, gospel, and blues. 
So right. and look what blues did in the world. Everybody responds to the blues. Everybody responds to rock and roll, which is, you know, blues taken a little further. Blues became rhythm and blues and went through different transmogrification. And eventually we got rock and roll and the variety of rock and roll we have. But it's a quite a universal phenomenon, this response to the note that's out of tune in, in the blue note. It's universal. You don't have to be an African-American to uh, resonate with it. It's a universal thing for a human being. This is another proof that this harmonic series is encoded in us. We right. know. So, so this is this is something that when when we were, Jake and I were listening to, to some uh, chants last week, mm-hmm. we were listening to, um, I don't know, Gregorian chant that seemed to be all even temperament and major tones. And then there was a Byzantine chant, which seemed to be have a lot of kind of minor keys and microtonals exactly. in it. I actually and the up. Byzantine chant, to me, seemed to have a more dramatic quality. It wasn't clean like the Gregorian chant. Was. I actually it do have... Very, it had a sense of suffering and drama in it. I have the uh, chant up if you want me to play a clip of it. Oh no, but 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 um, is that is 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 that what you're talking about about this being slightly out of out of tone and 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 yeah, because pulling a pulling a, a resonant feeling out of somebody even though the pitch itself isn't that clean perfect pitch. Uh huh. The reason why it's not clean because it has the microtones, the half lets and half sharp. Why? Because Byzantine chants basically are chants that I used uh, still till now in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, and, um, Greek Orthodox Church f- flourished in, uh, Byzantium, which is modern day Turkey. And it was, uh, they were influenced by Turkish and Arabic music. Basically, Byzantine chants, um, have a lot of Turkish and, and, and Arabic music, uh, influence these makamat. The modes, the the Arabic and Turkish modes. And is that what, what is that? Is, is that called the uh, the the Phrygian scale or the Hijaz scale? Which, well, which... yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Now, interesting thing about these makamat or modes. Uh, Arabic, the makamat, okay, right. Uh, they could be semitonal, which means the smallest half step half step would be uh, smallest division would be half step, like our scales in the West, mm-hmm. or they could be microtonal, but very interesting to note that, for example, the C major, the major scale would exist in that culture. But when they play the major scale or the minor scale or the Phrygian or the various mode, the Dorian, they're not going to sound like a normal major scale or minor scale. Why? Because the distance between one note and another would be great, different, would be either greater or smaller. Why? Because they're not played on equal tempered scale. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason. Adding to that, when, let's say, you're improvising on a makam, uh, the major scale exists in Arabic music called makam ajam, and nahawand is the minor scale. When, let's say, a musician is improvising on his or her instrument on this major scale, it's not going to sound like a major scale, not only because the divisions, the mathematics are different in the scale, but also the improvisation would not be outlining harmonies, chords. And we know how much the sense of the harmonic sense is used in improvisation, moving between harmonies. I also want to play at some point a little bit. Yeah, go, let's, let's get to some, yeah, some samples if you want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, we'll, we'll play a little bit, uh, some harmonics just so that uh, the audience won't, won't be lost. Jake, if you can play uh, a track called Harmonics uh, 110. Okay, yep. 
este... These are just few of them, uh, about 16, I think. Uh, but uh, in reality, they go through infinity. And it started with the fundamental. And probably uh, people listening noticed that some notes are out of tune, a little flat, a little sharp. Can you please play overtones demo? And lastly, violin harmonics, please. Good. Now let's talk about uh, what we were about to. Basically, if you take a string, now everything I'm going to talk about, this is not just uh, theories that we're exploring right now. These are theories that the ancients were obsessed with. Uh, Pythagoras, the father of geometry, uh, was obsessed with divisions of sound and even mm -hmm. Ptolemy and various scholars who came later on. If you take a string with a certain length, let's say that string, when you play, when you pluck it, it gives you a C. Now take the string and divide it exactly in two halves and lightly touch that midpoint it'll give you the first harmonic, which is the octave higher C. And then mm -hmm. take one half, or actually take uh, the string and divide it into three equal parts, not two, three equal parts. You get the next overtone, which is the G, that is plus two cents. Now take that same string and divide it into four, and you get the next harmonic overtone, which is the other C, after G, which is two octaves higher from the fundamental. Divided into five equal parts, you get an E. Six equal parts, you get a G. Seven equal parts, you get a B flat, and so on and so forth. So, so wait, now this must have been mystifying to the people who first discovered it and, and started figuring. I mean, is this, is this like the birthplace of mathematics or is this mathematicians playing with string? Well, both. And all of them are related to sacred geometry as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, phi and pi uh, and all the stuff we're talking about are all interconnected and not just limited to divisions of sound, but also architectures, aesthetics in general, basically, th that are observable uh, visually, but also auditorily. So the same ratios that we apply to, say, composing a piece of music... Mm -hmm. We apply to, um, you know, putting together a nice domed archway or, you know, uh, the way that we, we set up the architecture of a, of a, of a cathedral or something like, Correct. like that. Correct. Except now we're dealing with tempered scale, which to me, it's, uh, it's an a act. A lot of grids. It's grids, but also it's an act of castrating, <laughs> if I may say, or rubbing music. It's true power, which is, uh, disabling uh, this ability to, to, to affect human consciousness the way it should. So the calculation is based on Fibonacci sequence now. Is that what we're losing when we move to equal temperament? Uh, we're losing that because we made things snap into grid. Mm -hmm. We 
we didn't like these deviations, the plus minus few or more cents. We wanted everything to be. Well, not we. You're talking specifically. I mean, we is the people who were involved in <laughs> exactly uh, tempering the scale. And uh, these were the scientists and talks started around the late 1500s. And a lot of people think that the church was involved in this modification as well. Of course, everybody was working for the church until the split between science and church happened right, during right. Isaac Newton's time. But, um, you know, religions have always been uh, interested in uh, in consciousness. And when Isaac Newton and his buddies decided to make the split, uh, the church had no choice but to say, all right, fine, you can... Uh, explore anything you want about uh, physics and chemistry, all these things, but don't come close to consciousness. Consciousness is the domain of religion. Hmm. These scientists were so thrilled that they got the okay to, to uh, you know, investigate everything they wanted, but they didn't really know uh, what they're missing. And it's very interesting that this act actually is still um traceable to now a lot there's a lot of trepidation in science western science when it comes to talking about consciousness exploring consciousness what exacerbated the situation was you know in the age of enlightenment in 1800s um all these scientists who were fed up with um a lot of the ancient theories and and basically superstition they wanted to deeply get into science and became obsessed with measurement and the problem we have in the west is that we like to measure things we are interested in in um, studying only studying things that we can measure and we're realizing now that really the magic is in the stuff that we can't measure and this is what eastern philosophies and eastern science is into kundalini energy chakras and and chi and all the stuff that is not measurable and we're reaching a dead end in the West, and we're being forced to investigate further. I mean, now more seriously than ever, but this curiosity started happening in early 1900s with um, a few of um, the, the Buddhist scholars who brought Buddhism and Hinduism and also yoga, and even Carl Jung was interested in um, in, in some of these theories and I can. We don't want to diverge too much in that. No, we don't need to diverge too much. Um, I wanted to to jump back a little bit to um the uh the, the the setting of even temperament. Do you know of any period of time or place where certain forms of music were expressly prohibited or outlawed? Oh, yeah. No. This, oh, this, I mean, actually, oh no, yes. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, oh no, yes. I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but I'll, I don't think I have anything really concrete in my head. I know that there. I mean, there's always been, you know, what's called the demons' music or the devil's music, that um, that that I think you know, overly gospel type people tend to to throw at anything that's not gospel music. But what what can you let's talk a little bit more about like the banning of certain sorts of music and the types of music that people don't. I mean, that, that like organizations don't want people experimenting with. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the music that was played um, in uh, New Orleans by um, the West African slaves. Uh, they were not allowed actually to play uh, percussion and drumming music and do their chanting uh, on their time off after, you know, having worked in fields 
all day long, they were prohibited because they were afraid of what they're trying to transmit because authorities have always sensed that music has power that can cause a revolution or some sort of revolt. Mm-hmm. When it's expressed through singing, playing instruments, or even dancing, for example, in the case of dancing, the Tarantella was banned. Tarantella is um, uh, agile, fast, uh, complicated dance that's known in Italy, and the church banned it because, first of all, the dancing was very provocative in the same way that a lot of people didn't like the way Elvis Presley was dancing, gyrating mm-hmm. his hips, and they felt that this is obscene. So um, there was always an awareness toward what people are driven or uh, naturally tend to do on their instruments, with their voices, with their bodies, and that this was always related to sound. And the way I've, I'm researching things, I'm, I'm really realizing how much awareness the ancients and uh, authorities in the West especially have had towards some of these theories uh, that are involved in sound. Uh, for example, um, now there's a field called uh, archaeoacoustics, which is basically... Mm-hmm trying to figure out how uh, certain structures uh, in in historical sites um, are not only related to stars, which is archaeoastronomy, and, you know, like Stonehenge, for example, certain alignment with cosmology, because these were basically calendars, but also acoustics. And they were the most important example uh, an astonishingly beautiful and complex structure is called the hypogeum which is in malta i encourage everyone to um look at it, it hypogeum. The, the hypogeum in malta yes yeah. h-y-p-o-g-e-u-m and also look into the chavin culture in northern peru chavin de huentar chavin is spelled c-h-a-v-i-n and, the and these are people that built structures that had uh, specific acoustic qualities? Exactly. These are the uh, Greco-Roman uh, crypts, is that right? If I'm, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm are, I can sure. state many sides better. The hypogeums, yeah. Hypogeum is the best one. There's a great article in uh, popular um, archaeology magazine. You can access it online. And also if you search Chavin de Huentar uh, or Chavin and sound, you get a bunch of Scholarly scientific articles. So I just found a uh, a whole thing on a uh, hypogeum of Hal Salfliani. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I have a I have another question coming in here. Oh, um, do you? Okay. What? Let's let's jump ahead from um, harmonic overtones to um, what's happening now currently at like trance festivals with dubstep and techno music that's all centered around. Um, driving beats that are very, very uh, rhythmic. I mean, that, that, that loop and, sure. you know, go for so long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Plus these really sort of demented, mind-shattering breakdowns. What do you what do you think someone like like Mozart or Bach would think at mm-hmm. one of these festivals with these, these flashing lights and a single DJ with an electronics board just, just pumping these sounds out to, you know, tens of thousands of people? Would they even see that as music or, or would it be just beyond there? their understanding i think uh, all of it the first reaction would be complete shock but as they listen further and uh, notice how people are into it they would realize that um 
there is some sort of order that is uh, order in sound, in structure, in rhythm, and uh, in in melody that and harmony that's causing people to naturally react to it in resonance, and uh, they would be very compelled to study it further. But um, I think so. Yeah. Here's here's something that that I, that I'm really interested in. Um, I, I I find it very hard to find anything new in music. I listen to a lot of different music, and a lot of it seems to be variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, you get something like dubstep, which is fairly recognizable <laughs> until you get to these huge bass drop breakdowns. Yeah, where you have bass noises that have probably never been heard on the planet Earth before. Correct. With these super staccato, you know, just completely mind-shattering things happening in that music. And unpredictable. It's almost it's almost impossible to score that that kind of music. Um, yeah. When you look at it and you think about what's going on, um, how? But but people resonate with it in such a such a strong way. What what's going on there? I mean, what is what is it that these dubstep guys are tapping into with that? that sort yeah. of heavy destruction of, of tone or whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. Uh, well, I can, I can tell you in detail. So basically, um, this is something that I looked into uh, a few years ago. And I'm going to state another example of something that I studied in depth, which basically when I was a graduate student, I specialized, as I was saying earlier, in Turkish, Arabic, and Persian music. And in Turkish and Arabic uh, classical music, uh, there's a state of high euphoria, of ecstasy, of enchantment, that's called tarab, T-A-R-A-B. Tarab. Tarab. That's established between the audience and the performers. And basically, uh, the audience would be listening judiciously, attentively to what the musician or the musicians are playing or singing or both together, and would respond with stock of words and expressions indicating how much they're elated, how much they're taken by what the musicians are doing. And very So it's a feedback. It's this feedback it's between a, performer and, feedback and listener. And exactly. Not limited to just an applause at the end of piece. No instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Now this indicates mm-hmm. to the performers that ah, we have some real attentive listeners who understand everything we're doing. And let's say there's a soloist playing an improvisation in this culture. Improvisations are called um, taksim, plural takasim, which mm-hmm. is not just an improvisation. It's actually an extemporaneous composition because there are specific laws related to each makam or mode that the musician should uh, abide with. Wait, wait, no, specific laws. Is this what? What specific laws, are we uh, laws Sharia law or, or no, laws how you would improvise on that specific scale what kind of flicks you would do what kind of approach would you start with the upper so this is, these are laws passed down from master to student? yes okay. exactly. they're not they're not like imposed by some some no. government institution okay no no not at thank, all thank you thank you and, and uh thanks for asking for this uh, to clarify so basically um the, the audience would still respond to what this virtuoso musician who is using his or her uh, technique, but also sensi- sensibilities and willingness to reach the audience with with all honesty. But also, they would respond to the very delicate, not necessarily virtuosic passages, because anyone can respo- respond to 
fast, complicated passage. Anyone would recognize that this is something. That, and, you know, you would see this in, in jazz, for example, where the people in the audience would, would go with, yeah, yeah, man, or, you know, just give any uh, expression. But these uh, attentive listeners called Samia would respond to the very delicate, simple stuff, but with immense taste. And when the musician notices that these people are really responding genuinely to even the non-clearly virtuosic, but delicate and sensitive and witty um, phrasing, then this is further confirmation. Now, by doing this, this listening, appreciating, commenting, and the musician receiving, little by little, this boundary that exists between audience and performer would cease to exist. And ultimately, they both reach a state of tarab, which is basically a state of euphoria, of ecstasy, of enchantment, through uh, achieved through uh, listening, appreciation, and playing as well. Now, this is happening in the electronic music scene. Notice that nowadays, the DJ is no longer the DJ that used to be in the 70s, uh, early 80s, this guy sitting in the dark corner spinning LPs. No, the DJ is standing on an elevated uh, stage. With an altar. Sp- you, could, you can just call altar, it an altar. Exactly. Yeah, with, with lights on him or, or her and lights on the audience because they want to see how the audience, the, the, the people who are dancing, listening, are responding. And um, let's say they have a prepared set, but they're willing to relinquish that set and change things extemporaneously based on how the audience is responding or what they're seeing. This is very important to any DJ and they make extemporaneous decisions, bringing their sensitivity to what they feel the audience need and what their skills can permit them. Okay. Now I want to, let, me, let me just ask one specific question about dubstep mm-hmm. because the trance music, house music, electro, it's all very pleasing to the ear. But then when you get to dubstep, there's this segment of it where the DJ is literally hammering the audience with bass lines, like a sledgehammer yes. or like a jackhammer. Yeah. It's not necessarily pleasing to the ear. It's almost uh, like an endurance ritual that you have to go through to get okay. through that, that smashing of sound. What is that that's going on in music? It's I mean, exciting. is that, it excites. What, what is that? Low frequencies have been known, studied scientifically that they cause physical, even sexual excitement. These very low subtones. Some frequencies we don't hear, but we feel because, you know, the, the human threshold goes from about 20 hertz to, uh, 2000 hertz or sure, two yeah. kilohertz, uh, plus or minus. But when, when you play these very low frequencies, and, and this is, this is why a lot of people, you know, certain people would get these huge subwoofer and would put it in the trunk, which would take the entire trunk in, in the car. Uh, and it can vibrate a city block. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean these things are huge. A good city block sized piece of land. It causes excitement. And the, when, when these uh, low bass tones that we were talking about in dubstep, um, are thrown at the audience in an unpredictable way. And uh, yeah, they're a little aggressive, but they're exciting. And this element of unpredictability adds more the sense of unexpectedness and it throws off people, but you've seen how people behave. It's almost, 
you feel that the energy has the, the construct of a revolution, local little revolution. Because yeah, I, I can, I, I can, I, uh, I liken it to moving from a, a solid state to a liquid state in human yeah, behavior. Yeah. The, the, the crowd becomes almost liquid in its in a, its interaction with each other, as opposed to being individuals. Suddenly, they're part of a mass that's moving like a fluid almost, and all united. Right. Yes. In this music, they're united in this. Exactly. Sound. So is there anything in the history of human composition that that corresponds to what's going on in dubstep right now, where where the musician is literally hammering people with these these just you know, just to make them go crazy? Not exactly in the same way, but these bass instruments or let's say in West African drumming, uh, and in uh, voodoo performances as well, mm-hmm. uh, the low drum, uh, which has the bass tone, uh, for example, in a voodoo uh, trance uh, performance, you have three drums, one that's small in the middle one and the large one called uh, maman, which is the mother, which has a lowest tone. It's the one that keeps all the other ones together keeps the people who are chanting the dancer and that's the one that must not absolutely not fluctuate and usually the strongest most capable drummer plays this drum the largest one to keep everybody together and uh, he is not allowed to even falter or go in trance because everything would would fall apart basically he has to stay in the pocket for everybody absolutely absolutely and this happens in voodoo in santaria and candomblé the other two are variations on voodoo and these come from west africa basically this is the origin of these religions from daomi which is now in west africa so you still notice it you still hear it in west african drumming the role of the low drum the lowest drum and sometimes playing kind of interjecting uh, parts. It, you can also notice it in, in, um, uh, South American music as well, uh, in Afro-Cuban, you know, which has African influence. Um, so there you can find some of the origin. But what's fascinating here is that human beings would always resort what's needed to bring things back on track and to fix what has been, uh, altered, adjusted, tampered with. And this is what humans are doing right now in music, are bringing things back on track and fixing what has been taken away. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if more and more people would start to experiment with non-equal tempered music. Already, some people are doing this by fusing um, equal, I mean, uh, Western with non-Western music. A lot of composers, whether academic composers or in the mainstream realm, are fusing African, Arabic, Turkish, Indian music, all sorts of things. And this is basically is bringing back uh, what has been altered because these non-Western, most non-Western musical cultures have not, did not suffer the equal temperament. They did not adopt them. Listen to, uh, Indian music. Basically, well, you know, I want to play a couple of examples if, if we can. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, Let's get back. Yeah, to we have a examples. few minutes. Yeah. yeah. Now, the interesting part about the overtone is that, uh, throughout the world and, and various centuries, people who were, um, using sound in healing, have always resorted to instruments that generate the harmonic overtones, which are gongs of all sizes, Tibetan singing bowls, um, discs and bells. Um, 
other metallic instruments, also didgeridoo, which is not a metallic instrument, but basically the overtones which can be produced in the mouth, in the buccal cavity, by manipulating certain parts of, of uh, the singing process would allow the musician to change the quality of the overtone when, when a didgeridoo is played or simply singing. Well, a similar process to the didgeridoo happens when you play a Jew's harp, this little metallic instrument with a little lamella that you hit and you get various overtones coming out and the, the musician would be able to shape these overtones. But I'd like to play um, to the listeners some um, diphonic singings or overtone singing. These are sometimes called throat singing, and there are various uh, forms of them. People may have heard them in Tibetan chants. So, um, Jake, uh, let's try basically well, I- um few tracks. They're, they all start with demo. Demo one, demo two. Yeah, actually, they'll, they'll all just play through together. Yes, please. And these are basically different. This steady tone is the fundamental and the other ones are the harmonics. Okay. Oh, sorry, I was just letting them play through. That's okay. So, these diphonic, uh, diphonic singing, overtone singing, or harmonic overtone singing, throat singing, you yeah, can throat use those singing. things. Also yeah. sounds like didgeridoo. Exactly, exactly. So this is basically what you do on didgeridoo, more or less. You shape or you sing the fundamental and you manipulate certain parts in the buccal cavity to bring out different overtones because all of these overtones are in that fundamental. But you bring them out by uh, singing different vowels and shifting between one vowel and another. And basically, now, the interesting part, which I didn't get a chance to talk about, if the listeners are wondering, well, why is this sort of mathematics around in nature? What's the use of it? The use, basically, uh, and the function, every sound that we hear in nature, every voice of the person or of human-made instrument has a particular timbre or tone color which would allow us to distinguish the sound of, let's say, C played on a flute versus C played on a clarinet or an oboe, or the sound of one car horn versus another, a human voice and another, and so on and so forth. Why? Well, this gives us a lot of information. Basically, every sound that we hear, let's say C played on a flute, would have different harmonic overtones present in different amounts 
weak mm. or strong, which eventually culminate to a specific signature to the sound of a flute, which is a breathy, gentle tone versus that same register C played on an oboe, which has different alignment of overtones, but the sound of the oboe, of course, would be nasal, shrill, piercing. So this gives us a lot of information about things that we hear without directly looking at the source. Now this, in for a primitive person, for, for a hunter-gatherer society, this is very important because if, let's say, there's a hunter trying to hunt some prey, this hunter needs to be able to distinguish whether that sound is an angry bear or <laughs> a right. And I think I think it predates humans. I think I, I think something vibration is the first sense that uh, I mean. There's 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 light, there's gravity, and there's vibration. And I think all of even the the simplest organisms absolutely, but can, it can to respond be to those things, right? Absolutely, but it's very useful for human beings to get information about things that we can't see. In the same way, we get information from texture and temperature when we touch things or color when we look at things. So but this is this is something that I like to get back to about sound because it is literally a physical pulsation that you're yes. it's it's a, it's applied physics. Mm -hmm. You're using frequency modulation to bounce sound waves off of somebody's eardrum which causes them to have neuronal firings which directly changes their mood. Exactly. I mean, there's there. You don't even need to have an intellectual piece of the of the uh, of the equation there. It just goes right from sound to eardrum to nerve to hormonal response. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it's 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 very powerful when you when you think about it in those terms, as opposed to oh, a piece of music that's composed to have a certain emotional re you know reaction. Yes. Now, now what's it's, fascinating is that the, the ancients seem to have had an awareness of this. Why? Because what I'm observing, other than, uh, you know, uh, acoustics use in certain uh, structures, uh, but also the way the ancients drifted to constructing theoretical modal and harmonic systems based on the, the laws of harmonics. And also the way they built instruments, that the amount of work and science involved in metallurgy, which is the science of putting metals together, this is sophisticated chemistry. It's not easy to make a Tibetan singing bowl to have an alloy of various metals that you melt together and you take this sheet and hammer it to shape the instrument, that bowl you're making in specific diameter, specific thickness of the wall, and size to produce the overtones, same with gongs. They went to great lengths to craft these instruments to produce these overtones, which were used to affect consciousness, either in meditation or in healing. And all, all instruments used in healing, in sound healing in the past and in the present, are instruments that produce, project the harmonic overtones in an audible way. That's the important work part. While all instruments, all sounds do have harmonic overtones, if we were to analyze them using electronic equipment, the benefit is when we hear them directly without having to analyze it using computers or machines. Okay, so let's step back because I wanted to talk a little bit about healing sounds, although we're running out of time here. Mm -hmm. You're saying that the, the, um, the, the instruments that are produced to have the greatest healing properties 
are the ones where the harmonic overtones are clearly audible within the human range. Correct. Correct. And and not um, so so that's why you're saying the precision of these like say gongs or bowls needs to be perfect down to I guess the millimeter to get the the the, the, the right pitch when it vibrates to produce those overtones in the audible range. And fortunately, not all the, not all the time we can adjust everything. What we can do, we can, uh, based on the diameter and the thickness and the alloy, we can produce an instrument that would emit clearly harmonic overtones. But e- these overtones, when they're audible, they are producing the har- natural harmonics in nature. Okay. So now, why is that healing? Why is what? T- talk a little bit about how sound sure. is is healing. And we only have a few minutes here, so try and this, you know, this is basically where course. I'm spending a lot of time on on this research. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing that these overtones, when we can hear them, they would allow us to enter a deep meditative state and be able to disconnect from the discursive thinking. And we know that. Meditation is an ancient practice and has tremendous benefits, and these benefits have been studied by scientists. But very important to state that the goal in the meditation is to pay attention to the sensory experience rather than our thoughts on the sensory experience. And the goal is not so much to empty the mind, but rather not to get caught up in random thoughts. Now, if you're listening to an instrument like a gong or Tibetan bowl that is producing harmonic overtones, we'll be able to focus very gently or become aware, I should say, of the sound. And every time we notice that the the mind is wandering, we can gently bring it back to the sound. And this is where we need to be able to do this all the time and to listen into uh, um, with with uh, with great attention. Well, well, this and is interesting because if if the if the overtones are audible, mm-hmm. you they they creep into every spectrum of human consciousness. Yes, you can't yes. go to a place in your mind where those overtones don't come in and sort of overpower it or gently set those thoughts away. No, but something is resonating in us, and I've done uh, EEG studies, electroencephalography. And I saw that the overtones are quieting the mind, are adjusting, altering the brainwave cycles. And brainwave Mm -hmm. cycles, very briefly, they're the five gears that every human being has, basically. And we switch from one uh, cycle to another. Some of the listeners may have heard of the delta state, alpha, beta, and gamma. Sure. So you're saying that um, people listening to bells, they they synchronize the, in, in their their brain waves. Do they become entrained with the yes, harmonics, yeah, or do they just exactly. become quieted by the harmonics? Uh, well, both. Oh, they still they become entrained by the overtones. Yes, entrained. But if they can use it in a in a meditation, for example, they'll be able to quiet the mind and be able to. Uh, monitor what's happening in their thoughts uh, because the, the average person has 60,000 random thoughts a day. How many mm-hmm. of these thoughts are important? This causes a lot of fatigue. And so let's, we're talking about um, overtones in meditation. Let's bring it back to binaural beats before we close sure. and talk about how those are being used in meditation and, and consciousness yeah. exploration. Yeah. Binaural beats basically is uh, when you're listening to a track on a headphone and the track basically that you're hearing in your left ear is producing a frequency of 110 and the one in the right ear is 120. 
something happens in the brain, the brain will form a frequency that's in between, which is 115. So, so it creates like a stereo overlap of the two yes, sounds yeah. and yeah. and finds the median average. Exactly. And that's basically without entering into a lot of detail, which can get us to complicated ground here. So binaural basically just means you're putting two different two different beats or pitches in yeah, both ears yeah. and forcing the brain into a frequency range based on the, the split between those two. Yes, and this has meditative quality as well. It can uh, promote deeper meditation. But what I'm noticing in my studies that uh, harmonic overtones, correct use of the overtones and overtone emitting instruments is even more effective than, harmo- uh, than binaural beats. Right. Binaural beats... Um, it, yeah, it, it 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 takes a little while to relax to get the knack of what's going on with binaural beats. I found. And don't forget that we're using electronic uh, instruments, and and uh, whereas it's very important to use sound coming from acoustic instruments to benefit the most because there is vibration and the right, the natural vibration as opposed exactly. to like an, an electromagnetic sine wave. Precisely. Yeah. So, Alexandre, before we um, end the show, why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can find your work, um, where we can find out more about you and find your lectures. Sure. Well, um, my website is being worked on right now. It's called, um, it's basically soundmeditation.us. It's, it may not be up right now, but people can connect to me on Facebook. And as soon as it's up, I will uh, notify people. And um, there are some things on YouTube. Uh, some things would be uploaded. Uh, a lecture that I gave recently at National Arts Club in uh, New York City, um, extensive one on sound and um the esoteric and therapeutic properties of sound, which what I've been researching. And uh, given all this research that I, that I've done, uh, it compelled me to put together uh, um, a practice that I call sound meditation, where I promote um, correct use of sound in, in a setting that would enhance meditation and allow people to snap out of habitual patterns um, and, and get the gist of, uh, sound therapy mixed with breathing exercises in a meditative state. And that's why we are compelled and we are intrigued by sound because we do sense healing quality in music, even in the altered music that we have right now in the West. But the listeners must know that this is where it starts. And it goes much deeper than this. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd love to have you back to talk about some more Absolutely. of these Absolutely. I think it will be another time. We could probably go for another hour, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. There were several tracks we didn't get into, but maybe next time. But there's a lot, a lot, really. It's it's kind of worm after another when you approach sound. And, and uh, I'm I'm learning also. I mean, I spent... Right. Like, and when, you, when so, you start digging into the, like you say, the mathematical ratios, which differentiate these different types of music, you yeah. realize that these are these are just the human this is just the human music that we that we get based around the frequency ranges in our electromagnetic environment. Yeah. You have to imagine what music might be like on another planet where consciousness <laughs> develops in a slightly different way. Yes. We haven't even gotten into that kind of music yet. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but given the complexity of this mathematical ratio and the probabilities, the, the possibilities are endless. And it, sound can impact our consciousness in ways that 
we don't even understand. We, we, it, this is just the beginning. When the ancients, fascinatingly, they knew so much about it, and we're re-exploring it again. Right. It's, yeah. And it looks like it's good. it could be a fascinating field. I mean, I see um, new research on sound therapy uh, used yeah. for all sorts of different things. And it, it's it's becoming a little bit more cutting edge these days. So yeah. hopefully there'll be more in the future. And um, Jake, well, have we got any more announcements? Um, yeah, you can uh, like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's twitter.com forward slash uh, Dose Nation as well. <laughs> so it's pretty standardized and uh, pretty easy to find. And Remember- you can find our uh, iTunes link and our podcast RSS link at dosenation.com, and you can listen to archives of back episodes there as well. Yes, you can. And uh, a big thanks to Sepia Radio, as always, for broadcasting uh, the program live and syndicating us this evening. And... Um, Alexandre, thank you so much for joining us. Stay with us until after we end the program. Thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. And, of course, uh, joining me, as always, is uh, co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. Thanks, Jake. So, James, thank you uh, for being here. As always, we will see you next week at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, next week, if I remember correctly, I believe our guest will be Dr. Dave Nichols. So we'll be talking. Oh, great! It'll be a great show. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 So we'll be talking with him next week. It'll be really, uh, uh, you know, another interesting show. So make sure that you mark that. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, and uh, we will see you all next Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Have a good night. <laughs>